offside podcast the podcast where it doesn't matter if you're offside or onside just as long as you're inside the lines and if you're here just for the first time thanks so much for joining us i'm sorry if i might have gotten you a little bit excited that this might be another full episode but i just wanted to jump on here quickly to let you know that i'm working hard on the next bunch of fifa episodes that being said i decided it might be a good idea, since I'm trying to get ahead of you guys by a few episodes, if in the meantime I created some miniature episodes just to tide you over until we can get back to the craziness that is FIFA. As I said earlier too, you might notice that since the last time you clicked on the pod, I've changed our name. This is the part of the podcast where I 100% apologize to all of my sports marketing professors because I definitely did not do enough market research to figure out that naming your podcast the Offside Podcast was probably a bad idea. There is a lot of Offside Podcasts out there. So, to try to set us apart, luckily my favorite sport of hockey provides us with an old rule, which means we didn't have to deviate too far from the original title. Back in the day, the NHL had a rule that it referred to as a two-line offside rule. This rule stated that you couldn't make a stretch pass from behind your blue line to somebody past the center red line. The NHL abolished this rule after the 2004-2005 NHL lockout season in an effort to open the game up and provide more scoring. If I'm being honest, Little Mel was pretty upset about this rule change, if I remember correctly, simply because I don't really like any change. But I guess it worked out in the end because now we have a new name for my podcast. So from now on, this is in fact the two-line offside podcast. Just two more housekeeping notes before we get to the main part of this juicy sci-fi episode with a hint of Airbud for good measure. Firstly, part of the reason I've been so long since last posting another episode is that I'm having some serious technical difficulties with getting the episodes posted on either the orange or purple CastBox platforms, which usually come freely installed on Android devices for listening to podcasts. I'm going to put in a tech ticket with the folks at CastBox, but if for whatever reason we can't figure out how to get it to work, I'm pretty sure I know what I did wrong, and not only will I not do that again, I'll also put a relatively good recap in the next episode of the FIFA series, so those of you who can't get it on CastBox can still be following along. Alternatively, anybody that has an Android device but can't listen to it on CastBox can also listen to it on Spotify. That's not a plug for Spotify, I just know it works there. I'm really sorry for the inconvenience, but like I said, I'm a one-woman show, and I'm still learning. Last, but certainly not least, I'm 
super excited because we also have a new logo. I hope that you're just as excited about this logo as I am. I think it looks totally awesome. Shout out to my friend Sam of Kettle Hawk Designs for her hard work on that. Especially since I've gone back and forth with her more than a couple times. If you want to check out her work, you can check out her Instagram at kettle, K-E-T-T-L-E, hawk.design. If you love this logo, please go give her Instagram some love. Now, on to the main episode. Welcome back, ladies, gentlemen, and everyone in the middle. Welcome to the new mini version of the Two Line Offside podcast that I like to call the Power Play. The podcast where I give you a little unique digestible episode of a set of weird, definitely unnecessarily knowable facts about the cool things surrounding the sports and games that I hope we all love. As with the previous episode, there's a chance I might swear in this podcast. But if I do, I'll do my best to beep the audio so your kids should be okay. See if you can ID that unique sound effect that I use to censor my swears. Other than that, there shouldn't really be anything shady in this podcast. So, without further ado, let's do it. Let's go offside! On today's episode, in the words of the late 90s child star Little Bow Wow, They're playing basketball. We love that basketball. They're playing basketball. We love that basketball. Just like my singing slash rapping voice, I don't know a ton about basketball outside of watching my brothers play as a kid. So this is a little bit outside my comfort zone, but when I saw the sizzle reel of this epic basketball in question, which debuted on the sporting stage during the 2023 NBA All-Star Game, I knew I had to do an episode on it. Now if you like a lot of sports fans, have almost zero interest in the NBA All-Star Game, a game that has literally no bearing on the regular seasons of most major sports teams, then it's entirely possible that you missed this little Easter egg. But that's what I'm here for. Full disclosure, I definitely did not watch the NBA Slam Dunk Contest, which occurred on February 18th, 2023. But if I had, I would have seen K.J. Martin of the Houston Rockets debut this very special basketball, which legitimately looks like something that could have come out of either Will Smith's newest sci-fi movie, or have accompanied LeBron James into the technoverse of the latest Space Jam. Thank you times a thousand percent to LeBron James and Warner Brothers for remaking a movie that on so many levels literally defined my childhood. But I digress. Not only does this new all-black Wilson basketball look really cool, it's also 
at least to my knowledge, the first basketball to debut on a professional stage, which does not require air in order to be bounced. Now, if you're anything like me, there's a pretty good chance you have two questions. First of all, how? But also maybe why? Why on earth do we need or want a partially see-through, all-black, airless basketball? Why on earth do we need or want a partially see-through, all-black, 3D-printed, airless basketball? I'm so glad you asked. But before we can get to the part where LeBron James is using his old-school Air Jordans to masterfully slam-dunk a basketball like Air Bud with no air, it might be helpful to ask, what do you really know about the basketballs we make currently? Have you ever really thought about what it takes to make them? Why do basketballs have those little bumps on them? And most important of all, what on earth would be beneficial about the NBA starting to use a seamless, partially see-through, 3D-printed black basketball? What was wrong with the old model? One of the most thorough demonstrations of how NBA balls are made comes to us courtesy of ESPN senior writer Baxter Holmes. It's first worth noting that the article from ESPN that I'm citing comes from an article that he wrote back in 2015. In 2015, the official ball of the NBA was a Spalding ball. According to the staff writer Andrew Grief of the LA Times, Spalding has been making balls for the NBA since 1983, and they continued to make the NBA's balls for the next 37 years, until 2020, when Wilson, the sporting goods company, which also makes NFL footballs, took that over. That being said, according to that same LA Times reporter, Andrew Grief, the NBA were such sticklers in terms of how their balls were made that the new supplier in Wilson, as a part of the deals, agreed to get the exact same tannery in Chicago where Spalding had gotten the leather for all those years prior to use the same place. Given this choice, and quite honestly, the scarcity, and what I'm assuming a little bit of secrecy in the name of keeping trade secrets with regards to the info on how these balls were made, we're going to assume that the old school analog balls made now are made pretty similarly to the way Wilson balls are made now. So if we want to figure out how those iconic orange balls are made, we're going to have to go back to 2015 to the land that brought us deep dish pizza and America's infamously basketball-loving president, Chicago, home of the Obamas. The creation of a basketball seems like something that shouldn't exactly be very complicated, let alone one in need of a remix by a 3D printed model, toted for decreasing the carbon footprint of the NBA. But I bet you're saying, it's a leather ball with rubber inside, right? Well, that might be true of the ball that you bought in Walmart. But for the NBA, these balls need to be nothing short of perfect. And, like I said earlier, this takes us to a tannery in Chicago. According to that ESPN article that I mentioned earlier by Baxter Holmes, our story starts at a small, family-owned, 150-employee farm run by fourth-generation farmer Skip Harreen. 
Hang on. Can we take one sec to just talk about the fact that the name Skip, regardless as to if that's a real name or a nickname, is the absolute quintessentially perfect name for the stereotypically old, weathered, hard-working farmer that I'm picturing in my head. I love it. Okay, back to the show. So according to the story by Baxter Holmes, our orange spalding balls start on this little farm on the North Branch of the Chicago River. This farm boasts being the oldest continuously running tannery in the United States, founded in 1905. It should come as no surprise then that this place would be a prime place for the birth of such a prestigious ball. But if you think that simply being old and long-standing is what got Hoeen Leather Company the contract with Spalding, it certainly wasn't. This little company did it in true stereotypical sports movie montage fashion. They did it with hard work and persistence. Again, according to Baxter Holmes' story, Hoeen secured Spalding's trust in this matter by sending them samples over the course of nothing short of 11 years. That's right, 11 years. Eventually, when the right ratio was found, Spalding would select Hoeen's leather because of all the other leathers it had tried, according to Paul Sullivan of Spalding, quote, the balls broke in much quicker and were ready for gameplay significantly faster with its leather than other leathers that it's tested. Once the leather for NBA balls is selected from farms in either Iowa, USA, or Ontario, Canada, hair is removed. No one likes a hairy basketball. They cut it to the desired thickness. It's re-tanned, or basically beaten down, in layman's terms, in large drums. From there, the leather is then pressed with a 1,000-ton press with a German-made embossing plate, which gives the ball those dimply bumps that are so iconic of a basketball. That's right, folks. The modern basketball is not simply a product of North America. We also have some fine German engineering to thank for this all-important feat. Although each NBA ball requires about three to four feet of leather to make, Hawin's leather sends its embossed leather off in 10,000 square feet sections. Or, for my Canadian or European homies, 107,639.10 square meters to Spalding's manufacturer in China. Although I have no idea what factory in China Spalding uses for manufacturing, if, for the sake of argument, we assume that this plant exists in the capital of Beijing, and I repeat, this is an assumption, that means that the leather in this baby basketball has traveled 6,585 miles, or 10,597 kilometers, for those of you keeping score. 3,200 yards, or 2,926 meters, of nylon winding from Japan is used to create the outside section of the inflated bladder of the ball. Again, for those of you looking at your Garmin, Japan is 1,297 miles, or 2,088 kilometers from China. Lastly, the final stage of the building process of this international basketball mission, the inner sphere of the ball is covered with rubber sourced from either Malaysia or Vietnam. In keeping with our theme of where does that basketball come from, 
Malaysia and Vietnam are 5,668.2 kilometers and 4,080.2 kilometers respectively from where this ball is being built in China. In a final step, those eight iconic orange leather panels are glued by hand onto the ball. Once constructed, the balls are shipped back to the U.S. to Alexander City in Alabama, which is home to Spalding's testing facility, where it's tested and broken in for three to four weeks. How do you break in a ball for something with as high stakes as a professional basketball game? Would you believe me if I said that it was this machine that looks a lot like the pitching machines that a batter might use to warm up before a game. This machine feeds new basketballs into two wooden wheels against a maple wooden plate from a distance of six feet. Maple being the wood choice for most NBA courts, and six feet being on the low end of the average NBA player's height. Once each basketball has been partially broken in, around 50 bounces to be exact, each NBA team is given 72 balls for the season and about two months to use them before the beginning of the regular season. Now, the process that an NBA ball has to go through in order for an NBA player to feel like the ball is comfortable to use in a game really is something that I find super fascinating, but I don't have time to go into it here. If you really want to learn more, you should definitely go read that ESPN article that I used for most of this section by Baxter Holmes. I will leave that link in the show notes for those of you who would enjoy the rabbit hole. Now that you know way more about the construction of a standard old-school basketball than I'm sure you bargained for when you opened this podcast today, I bet you maybe still have some of the same questions that I did when I saw this sci-fi-looking basketball referred to in most media releases as, quote, an airless basketball. How does a basketball without air bounce? Why 3D print a ball? What on earth even is 3D printing? Well, my friends... If you didn't think you'd entered the nerdy part of this podcast yet, then let me welcome you to it. Welcome to the nerdy science corner of the podcast, where we learn nerdy science things. First things first, what even is 3D printing? Well, the company who actually physically made the airless basketball got design help from a company called General Lattice. But the actual act of constructing the ball was the work of a company called EOS. According to their website, EOS usually works in 3D printing things for things like the aerospace or medical industry. But they made an exception for this ball. They specifically refer to what they do as additive manufacturing, though they also note that additive manufacturing and 3D printing are sometimes used interchangeably. But to explain additive manufacturing, I'm actually going to begrudgingly Use an analogy from an ancient history class I took recently in school. Shout out to my ancient history peeps and professors, and to that school counselor I promised at least ten times that I would never actually use this stuff. I totally concede I owe you lunch or something. Back in the day, and honestly, probably also today for that matter, when we built something, we would cut large blocks of rock with the desired metal inside, say copper for argument's sake, and then we would chop away at that rock to get a more refined copper hunks. We call these hunks ingots. Simply put, the way we used to build things is by cutting away things to refine them into what 
we actually want them to be shaped like. In other words, we subtracted stuff from the rock to make stuff. 3D printing, or additive manufacturing, is the opposite of that. So, rather than making something out of something else, 3D printing, or at least that used to make our ball, a computer uses a CAD drawing, which is a 3D drawing of something done on a specific program in a computer, which the printer then uses to build something out of nothing, with dust-sized particles directed by a laser, creating things layer by layer until we reach the spherical shape and the unique octagonal sections of the airless basketball. But Mel, there's a hole in the basketball. Here lies a, a hole. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, that's a callback to my third grade music teacher. I appreciate so much you sparing my feelings, but now I'm old enough to be okay saying that I'm 100% not good at music. Good thing I'm good at podcasting. Speaking of which, back on track. Question two, how does an airless basketball bounce, do you ask? Well, honestly, based on all the stuff I looked at and the fine folks at Wilson Sporting Goods and EOS are being a little quiet about how that might work. But thanks to some work done by a YouTube channel, Science Tech News, we might be able to get a little bit of an idea. And I do mean a very small idea. We can take this hint about how an airless 3D printed basketball would work from airless 3D printed tires, which are still in the prototype phase and seem to function with some type with some type of give because the inside of the tire is lined with specific geometric shapes with a very specific type of plastic, which allows it to rebound, that is at least somewhat in a way similar to rubber. Once again, I have genuinely no idea how this works, but I'm hoping that's just because I know nothing about the engineering of building basketballs, but also maybe because Wilson is keeping trade secrets? I don't know. If anyone at Wilson Sporting Goods wants to reach out, you can reach me at offside.podcast12 at gmail.com. I'd love to have you on the podcast and do another episode if you want to provide some insight. I figured since I wasn't exactly able to satisfy you with the how in terms of how this basketball bounces, I'd leave you with our final question, which has a few more concrete answers. Why on earth would the NBA, or anyone else for that matter, want an airless basketball? There's actually a few answers to this question. In accordance with Occam's razor though, Let's start with the simplest answer first. A basketball without the need to be inflated means that players, be they kids on the street or NBA stars, don't need to worry about under-inflated balls. A second explanation could revolve around the cost or the carbon footprint if the NBA wants to add a, quote, slightly more environmental angle to its business model. If you take into account not only the distance that the actual physical ball traveled, but also the distance traveled by all the parts that go into it, when building a traditional ball, that's a total distance of 29,486 kilometers. I'm not well versed in the price of jet fuel, but it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that's a lot of distance for stuff to travel just for a basketball. And yes, I did do that math. 
The final reason why a league like the NBA might want an airless basketball is possibly the most interesting, and that's cheating. Just as every player has a level of broken in and dirty that they want a ball to be, the league has a level to which it wants its balls to be inflated. 7.5 to 8 PSI, in case you were wondering. But a ball inflated more or less could bounce differently or be easier to grip by an opposing team. There are actually quite a few instances of teams cheating by manipulating the amount of air in balls. That being said, this is a shortened power play episode. And you, my friends, have officially reached the end of this one. So on that note, folks, thank you so much for reaching the end of this podcast. Your support means so much to me. Please don't forget to rate, share, and subscribe. And let me know if you want me to do more little episodes like this. I wasn't kidding when I said I could probably do an entire episode on the manipulation of game balls. The Two Line Offside Podcast is a production of Sound Shifter Productions, meaning that it's written, produced, hosted, and researched by yours truly. Thanks again to Alex Action of Pixabay.com. Thank you to Dub Sounds, also of Pixabay.com. And thanks once again to my friend Sam at kettlehawk.designs on Instagram. If you think I did well and stayed onside, or if you think I didn't do so well and I went offside, or you have some ideas for an episode, you can email me at offside.podcast12 at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, guys. I'll see you next time. Thank you.